Okay, well, uh, during this uh, Work His Way series, which has been a lot of fun, to be honest, I've really enjoyed it. I've had a chance to hear back from a lot of you as well. Not only have we been able to have some after-service chats on Saturday evenings, but just getting a lot of feedback. Uh, I realize that, that a lot of us do face very challenging situations or we're having a hard time staying motivated. And so a lot of what we're sharing has tremendous application for us in real life. As you know, the last part of the Work His Way series, which we're finishing up next week, has, this has been focusing this piece here on the life of a man named Daniel. Daniel has a book named after him in the Older Testament, was a historical figure who has a remarkable way of, of sort of representing how to work in what for him was an extraordinarily challenging work environment, and yet how to live out our faith. And so that's why we chose him. And we're going to sit with him and his ongoing story a little bit. Remember, he lived at one of the most uh, unique times in human history. <clears throat> some, sometimes in history, I know some of us are aware of this, but not all years are the same. I mean, even, even in, if you think about it in a country like ours, where our nation, it's true we've been existing for a, a little while now, you know, well over 200 years. At the same time, from the larger perspective, it's very small in terms of the scope of, of nations and their existence. Uh, Jesus said that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. In ancient, ancient history, we know there were well, probably were called four great ancient military kingdoms, uh, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, then followed up with Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Each one of them kind of connected to a development of warfare, actually, and organization. And then finally, the Romans, who extended their reach all over the, the ancient world and in a way that had never been seen before, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome enforced with with the law of violence and, and warfare. That, that also was the timing that prepared the way for the coming of Messiah, Jesus. But having said that, Daniel is living at around, in the five, you know, we will call him the 500s BC. So he's, you know, hundreds of years before, centuries before the time of Christ. He witnesses firsthand the turning, an inflection point in, in geopolitical history. He watches at an intimate level, at a high level of observability, the fall of Babylon. He's there when it falls, when the, when, the, when the kingdoms turn, when the world power shifts. He sees it happen. He watches as the Medes and the Persians take Babylon and the empire falls. Now, he had a particular challenge that he had, he had to deal with. Um, we talked about how he had to learn how to adapt and walk a kind of high wire of faith and vocation. In other words, there was a del delicate balancing act that was required of him. He loved God. He was committed to his ways. At the same time, he was in a very foreign environment, and we'll talk about that. We know that the challenges he faced was that he, he had to figure out when to stand up for things and when to let things go. He, he didn't always know which way to, to operate, so he had to be very adaptable with his faith and his work, which makes him a perfect model for you and me. So let's look if we can. You can follow along your Bible. You get your hand, it in the handout as well. We're going to look at Daniel 6. We're going to review verses 1 through 4. If you've got your Bible app, you can, do that. you can read through that as well, obviously. But what we want to look at here is this piece of, of Scripture. And I want us to sort of set the table. We looked at this last week. I want to click, quickly move through it. It says, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. Verse 1, he, he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel, there he is, and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself even more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. And because of 
Daniel's great ability, the king actually made plans to place him over the entire empire. In other words, King Darius, been, who had been placed in that role by Cyrus the Great, who, who was the one who led the siege of Babylon, when Cyrus takes Babylon, he puts Darius the king as the one who's in charge. Darius sets up his new administration, his government. He essentially divides the, the Babylonian land into 120 provinces. Each one of them has a governor, a ruler, someone we would call a magistrate. Those magistrates are then overseen by three people. That's how they restructured it, almost like a restructuring of a business or setting up a, an administration. Of those three leaders, Daniel was one of the three. He had been carried over from his time serving in the courts of Babylon. Now he's serving in it with a new administration, an entirely new empire with new ways of operating. Word gets around, though, that there's actually some consideration due to the quality of Daniel's work that he might be promoted above the other two that he had been given responsibility to rule with. So of the three, there was real discussion and thought going on on the part of the king who admired Daniel and his work, that Daniel should be placed above the rest and actually be given almost like a, co a kind of a, a place in which he was second only to the king in terms of his power and reach. Of course, this was very concerning. One of the things that it says, though, in verse 4, it says that the high officers began to <clears throat> search for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs. So in other words, they start to do work to try to figure out his rivals, that is, is there a way that we can take him down? And so they start to do some you know, work to look at his life, how he does his work. Does he got any side deals going on? Does he got some skeletons in the closet? Is there anything they can find to sort of exploit and take him out of this this position that he's being considered for. They want to pull him out. They want to ruin him, all right? Which makes a lot of sense if you're looking at it from their perspective. But what, was, what they found out was they really couldn't find, look what it says there, it couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. I mean, even his enemies, looking at his life with a fine-tooth comb, could not really find anything that they could exploit and say, oh, there it is. You know what, we can use this against him. It says that he was pretty much faithful. The Bible says responsible and trustworthy. I mean, this is this, this idea that he's the real deal. And one of the things we talked about last week, I want to put it back up there again, is this, that you and I, as, as we seek, and I'm talking to those of us who are at that place in our lives where we really want to sincerely follow Jesus, okay? That it actually matters a lot to us. I know others of us are in a seeking mode, but a majority of us are at a point where we would say, the Lord is my Savior. I've welcomed him into my life. I've made a decision that I want to identify myself with him, and I want to represent him well. I know I'm perf imperfect, but I want to be... Um, as a quality of a person as I can be. And if that's our heart, then we will learn from these principles because that's what they're designed to do, to help us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. One of the things that's pretty clear here, and we'll just note it, is that the Lord really does, by Daniel's example, remind us to commit ourselves to doing quality work under the Lord. In other words, to say that we love the Lord and then be a, a poor worker is kind of a disconnect. Hey, it really is. Um, the... He was good at what he did. He was a skilled administrator, and he got results. He had established a track record of delivering with excellence. And again, you notice verse 4, faithful, responsible, trustworthy. In the NIV translation, which is a different translation, it says he was neither negligent nor corrupt. Right? He was, he was essentially this, even though, even though, yes, Daniel is an unusually gifted man. We get that. And we may not all be as gifted in our field as Daniel was in his field, but we can all maximize our ability 
and I was sharing this with someone, we can all live into our capacity, right? We can uh, keep improving, keep doing good work. Again, Daniel's described as being neither corrupt nor negligent. And what does that speak of? Corrupt, negligent, uh, honest, attentive, right? You just flip that over and that's what you get. Now, all of us can be that. All of us can be honest people. I mean, known for our honesty where we work. Like, can our, like can our employers, our managers, uh, can, can they say, this is an honest man or this is an honest woman? One thing about that faith that they talk about, man, you can trust them. I can trust them. I trust them. They don't steal. They don't skim. They're not cutting back deals. Right? They're honest people. They're honest. They're honest. And for some of us, the Bible, that's one of the things when the Bible talks about it, when people were just coming to know the Lord, the apostles would, in the New Testament, one of the things the early church would remind people is, if you've been stealing, stop stealing. Don't do that anymore. Don't, don't be a thief. Live under the Lord. Um, also, the idea of doing good work, being attentive to details, right? Look what it says there, that he was really good at what he did. I think the idea of being attentive is, means that we can all be honest and attentive, what does that mean? It means I, be, I, he appears to have been a finisher at what he did. Like he finished things, and a lot of, which is an important quality. I mean, the last 10% separates and leaves an impression, doesn't it? A lot of times, some of us have a, have a habit, and I'm a, I don't want to be mean to anybody, but I try to remind myself of this, is that quality often depends on the last 10%. I mean, we can work really hard at a project or something that we're committing ourselves to, and then we don't finish it well. We don't finish. That last 10% matters. Jesus talked about going past a tower that was incompleted, and he says, you know, that people will note that and say, what was that person thinking? They started it, but they didn't really count the cost. Right? The idea of finishing matters. Daniel was a finisher. At least that's what it appears. Now, I look at that, and I'm going, wow. You know, he could have allowed his circumstances to affect his attitude, his job performance. Because after all, it wasn't Daniel's idea to be in Babylon. It wasn't like, oh, you know, he, he you know, chose to go there because they got some really great jobs going on at the top end, and I'm going to head over to Babylon. No, no. He was, if you remember, taken forcibly with a lot of his own contemporaries by Nebuchadnezzar and brought to Babylon. He didn't choose to go. He was taken. When Nebuchadnezzar, the great general, takes uh, the land of Israel, and Judah in particular, one of the things he decides to do, as was the Babylonian custom, was to take the cream of the crop of the young people who were the most essentially gifted and trained and educated, and they would take them and forcibly force them into assimilation and absorb them into Babylonian customs and culture. So Daniel was taken with a lot of his contemporaries, some of the best and the brightest of, of, of the Jewish people, taken forcibly, removed, pulled away from their home, community, and life, and brought to Babylon to serve at high levels and to be trained in their ways. Daniel didn't have a choice. It wasn't like he said, oh, this is the job I've always wanted, and, and you know what, now I've got it. He, he couldn't say, you know, I don't like this job anymore, and I'm going to go somewhere else. That, would, you know, that option did not exist for him. He, would, he was where he was. He, would, he knew he probably would never see 
the people he loved again. His family, ever. But he, wouldn't, he would not be able to go home. He was going to have to adapt. There was no other alternative for him. And yet he wanted to hold his faith. So what does he do, right? I think a lot of, and then again, he wasn't free to leave. And I have to believe as a human being, it's just, I mean, we read the story, we go, oh, okay, Daniel, yes, he, he's, you know, look at Daniel. Look, there had to be times where he felt utterly kind of like disappointed with his life, trapped. You know, it's true he had a lot of things, comforts, I suppose, but what good were they when he had no real freedom? He couldn't communicate like we can today. There was no mechanisms for it. Stuff that we assume, you know, we can communicate with people in, in, in moments, see their faces in ways that I've often marveled would have seemed like science fiction 50 years ago. But nowadays we take it for granted and assume it's going to get faster and faster and better and better. Daniel's day, there was no mechanisms for communicating. He was just cut off. I know he felt alone. I know he had to feel sad. If he's like you and me, there were times where he felt like, how can I, how can I even enjoy life? I mean, yet alone my work. I mean, maybe some of us feel like he felt trapped. He felt trapped by his circumstances. No question about it. Couldn't get out. Maybe some of us feel that way now. Maybe there's some of us, maybe it's at work. We might feel a little trapped, stuck with a situation that we can't change. Or maybe in our life, there's a situation or two that we feel like, man, I, can't, I really can't do anything about it. And we can relate to something. In the, you know, Daniel couldn't control his situation, but he could control his attitude and his ethic. And how he worked, that was his choice. Where he worked, he couldn't, he had no choice. In fact, for him, if he didn't work to some degree in a way that was considered appropriate, he could lose his life. Like, it's one thing to say, you're going to get fired. It's another thing to say, you're going to get killed. That's a very different level, right? I think we understand that. Daniel, Daniel but that's not what drove him. Like, he could have he done what needed to be done and not had excellence in him. But the reason he excelled is because he worked as unto the Lord. He was a difference maker for God. He interpreted, remember we talked about this? He interpreted God. He, he lived for God. It's true, he could have justified, why should, I be, why should I be loyal to a God who can't even take care of his own people? Like, look where I'm at. Forget God. I'll just go along with everybody else here. But he didn't do that. And he made a huge difference. And part of it had to do with his attitude. Now, I was thinking about this, because in your handout, you can see there's a, there's a portion of scripture from Colossians 3. I put it in there. It says, it talks about how we are to be, uh, the kind of attitude, the kind of things that we're to bring to the table. Look at this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell, rich, dwell in you richly. See it? Colossians 3, 16. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And wherever, whatever you do, in word or deed, anything that you do, what you touch, what you pour your life into, do it, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through the Father, the God the Father through him. And these, these verses have a lot to say about how we engage people, how we work. Paul wrote Colossians to a group of Christians, Jesus followers, some of whom were slaves. And it's as if he's saying, no matter what happens, remember this, that you ultimately work for Jesus. You are his representatives. That's how you need to view yourself. Daniel wasn't a slave in a, in a modern sense, but in an ancient sense, he was. 
He wasn't free, and yet he chose to make a difference for God within the framework of unfair limitations. And so I want, us to, I want to put this up for us to consider. You know, not that verse, but the second point. When, when we're confronted with limitations, it's better to focus more on the opportunity to honor God than on the negativity of our situation. And so one of the things I want us to ask the question around is, where are we going to focus? Some of us might say, well, you don't know my situation. I know. Where are we going to focus? What kind of people are we going to be? What kind of workers are we going to be? What is going to be the dominant theme of our life? That's, see, that's a question. I can't change some things. But how we view it, when we're confronted with limitations in life, we're either going to, have, we're going to get a chance to choose. Are you going to focus and get negative or bitter or angry or discouraged or depressed? And man, I just ran that list off pretty fast. All of those words have meaning to them, right? Some of us, our frustration shows up in anger, and we take it out on people we love. But really, it's part of it. We're frustrated. For others of us, it has to do with something that we're bitter about. We can't change it. We see it trying to define us. We want, we, we were aware of it, but it's really hard. So it has to do with the way we're relating. We feel trapped. Certain things in our life has sort of boxed us in. Some people say, well, you have room to maneuver, but part of us feels like I really don't, not with the expectations that are on me. Some of us live under tremendous expectations of other people. And someone might say to us, well, it shouldn't matter what people think, but it does. What if those people are our family? Or what if those people are people that actually whose opinions matter to us? Well, now we've got to wrestle with stuff. That can create a lot of internal strife in our lives. How do we, so how are we going to do this? If we allow ourselves to focus on the, what's wrong and let that start to define us, then we're just going to get destroyed by it. We have to, because that's what could happen to Daniel. It's like, my life's a disaster. He could have let that define him, but he didn't. And the Lord, again, I want to go back to that Colossians verse. I want you to see something about it. We'll, we'll flash it back up there, this one from the NLT. What, look what it says. Now, look more closely, because we read it through the first time. It may not have really registered. I want us to look at that as a perspective shift. Let the message about Christ in all its richness, look at this, because now we're, we're being given a model for how to do this. It doesn't look like it, but it's all there. This is how to do it. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with gratitude, with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, look at this, do it as what? A representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What do we see going on there? I kept thinking about our mission statement, for one thing, the idea of living out our faith in Jesus and inviting others into life with him. That's clearly there. But you know what we're being told here? We're being reminded that the way to do this is to make sure that you have a dominant theme in, in your life, that, I, that we have a dominant theme in our life, and to reinforce that. What is that dominant theme supposed to be? Let us, let us see. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. Let that be the dominant, immersive theme of your life. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. And then, then notice, then it says, teach and counsel with wisdom. Then let the wisdom of God, 
So I have a dominant theme. My dominant thing is Christ in my life. Then I, I welcome his wisdom into my life. But then what does he say to do? And let that wisdom also then be complemented. And if I could put that, just keep that verse up there for a little longer. Let that wisdom be complemented with what? This idea of songs. Like, what is that? That has to do with kind of a, a joyfulness that is part of our life. That I have a song in my heart. That, that, and then I'm coupling that with a, a spirit of gratitude which is, and then I'm always reminding myself that I'm also representing the Lord's heart. You see, if we take this into the workplace or into our relationships, how this begins to change them, I start by saying my dominant theme is the message of Christ living in me. So I will cultivate that, always nurture it. And then I will seek his wisdom in his words. I will allow his words to fill my life with wisdom so that I act with prudence, that I'm capable of being very nimble, even in complex situations and environments. As his wisdom grows in my life, I'll also make sure that I have something of his joy abiding in me, that there's a song in my heart. We may not all be able to sing like some of the ones up here. They sing great, but we can all sing with a song in our heart. What is the song God wants us to sing? You know, there is something about that. There's something about the idea of coming into our, into our workplace environments with the life of Jesus and the song of the Lord in our heart. Well, you don't know my situation. I'm just saying that's what we're being invited to do. And then it says to accent it with thankfulness and gratitude. Focus on the things that God's placed in our life to be grateful for. Let that be a dominant part of our life. And then remember always as we work, that we work as a representative of the Lord, that we represent him, that people are going to form their opinions of Jesus on the basis of what they observe in the lives of people who claim to know and love him. That's how they're going to make their opinions of him. You know, everybody's, they're being bombarded with false ideas all the time of who Jesus is. But if they can see his reality in the lives of people, not perfectly, but sincerely, in the lives of people who claim to know and love him, and are willing to talk about that from time to time, and the quality of the work and the way in which we treat people backs that up, there will be a sense that people will, will be irresistibly drawn to the Lord. They will at least consider him in ways they wouldn't have considered him before because of the reality of who he is shining through our lives. Again, that's part of what we're being called to. Remember always, he says, that we are representatives of the Lord. Now, watch, because Daniel, Daniel made, he was dealt a tough, a tough hand. But he made the best of a tough situation. He didn't drag his feet. He wasn't walking around yielding to defeatism. He didn't have a dull ethical edge, right? He, he did his best. And remember, I heard, it one, I heard someone say, I can't remember who it was, but I remember the quote, Remember, if you don't like a situation, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. That's good medicine. It's good medicine. Let's watch what they did with Daniel. They figured they couldn't take him out because of the quality of his work, so they came up with another plan. Let's look at it. And we'll, this will be the last piece that we close with scripture-wise. It says, so they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So many with, they, had a, they had a group of people come together to think about how to take him down. Think about that for a moment. They, like, they're, they're having a discussion about, hey, how do we think we could, we could take him out? And someone says, well, <laughs> I don't think if we're looking for like, contradictions inside of him, that we're going to be able to catch him on anything with, in terms of what he's been doing. But there is an area where he is particularly vulnerable. It has to do, I think you know, you know it has to do with his faith, the, 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 his, his dedication to 
the, the, the rules of his religion. He's vulnerable right there. And they came up, I don't know who it was, so one of them came up with a plan that was going to be able to take out Daniel. And the way they were going to do it is they were going to appeal. Watch what happens. Someone says, we'll come up with, oh, we're going to appeal to the king's ego. And we'll create a scenario that will put Daniel in a place where he will, he will if, we, if, if we think we know him, he's going to end up putting himself in a place where we can take him down. Look what their plan is. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and the high officers, they went to the king and they said, long live King Darius. We're all in agreement. We're, we administrators, look at the long, administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors. Well, that's a good big chunk. We, we all, we've come to the conclusion that the king needs to make a law. And the law that needs to be strictly enforced. What we suggest, what we feel, is that you need to give orders that for the next 30 days, we'd like to present this, it only needs your signature, for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, whether that's divine or human, except to you, your majesty, um, they'll be killed, in this case, thrown into a den of lions. We'd like to honor you in a special way. You are, as you know, like a god to us. And you deserve to be acknowledged exclusively for who you are. Well, yeah, I mean, what's the king going to say at that point? And they knew this one rule, too, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, once that was signed with the imprint, it was irrevocable. And they thought, this, is, this will put Daniel in a place where we know he will put himself in jeopardy. And it says now, that, look at this. It says, and now, your majesty, verse 8, Issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed. An official law of the Medes and the Persians, as you know, cannot be revoked. So King Darius, who loved Daniel, he, he, he admired Daniel. He didn't understand it was a trap specifically designed to use his ego and the unique culture as a way to take out Daniel. And it says that but when Daniel learned, look at this. The, it says when Daniel learned about the law after the king signed it, he went home. And he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open towards Jerusalem. And he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. There's something inspiring about the simple way this verse captures Daniel and his commitment to God. There's the ordinariness of it, this, the quiet strength. There's, there's no flamboyant display. I'll show you just an understated kind of courage. And look what it says in verse 11. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house. They took out their iPhones and they took shots. <laughs> and, and they found him praying and asking for God's help. Right? He, what do we see here, you guys? That one of the, do you see it? That one of the keys to Daniel's success had to do with his, his rhythms of devotion. You look closely there, you, you'll notice things. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of devotion. He had prayer rhythms. There was a physicality, actually, to some of the way he prayed. Uh, there was a focus that he had in his prayers. So just, oh, it, it wasn't just like a random prayer. He could pray. There's nothing wrong with praying throughout the day at different times. But Daniel's case, we're told that he had a pattern or a rhythm. He followed a pattern that was actually suggested by, by the psalmist in Psalm 55. Look at it, what it says here. It says, as for me, I will call upon God. 
and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and the Lord will hear my voice. The idea of praying, in Daniel's case, according to this pattern, was part of his life. Morning, evening, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and the Lord will hear my voice. I remember a certain time in my life where I thought, like, I really wanted to drive something home in my heart. I sort of used that as a pattern for prayer. The idea is at the beginning of my day, in the middle of my day, and at the close of my day, morning, evening, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and the Lord will hear my voice. There are, Daniel had a prayer pattern. He had a way of approaching God. We know that Jesus met the Lord. He, he aligned himself with the Father early in the morning, sometimes before the sun had even risen. Before the day break, broke, he had already had his time aligning with the Father. It's interesting. In our church, we actually have a, in our women's ministry, we have a group of women. It's a pretty large group of them now. Who They call themselves the high fivers. And they, they rise up at 5 a.m., to do their devotions together. And they check in with one another in ways that wouldn't have been possible in previous generations, but now it can be done. And they just say for four days a week, we're going to pray at the early time of the day. And I admire that greatly. It's an open group, by the way, if some of you feel led to get involved, some of you who are women in there. But I mean, I'm not totally sure how to exactly how open it is, but I know it's pretty open. I'm pretty confident about that. One more thing. We know something else about Daniel. He had a way in which he prayed that was connected to something that had been written in the book of Chronicles. Check this out. Look what it says here. It says that when your people go out to battle against their enemies, whenever you, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you, to, you, to you toward this city, which you have chosen in the temple, which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Daniel, on the basis of this, he couldn't, he couldn't go home. He couldn't be in the, in the sanctuary. He couldn't go to Jerusalem. So he did what he could do according to what had been presented. He, he faced towards the west, and he positioned himself through his windows towards a place that he could not see with his eyes. And he prayed to the Lord in the direction of his people. And we know one other thing else that he did. If you go to Daniel 9, you realize that he also had this scroll from the prophet Jeremiah, it's kind of like a Bible, like his, one, of his, one of the books of the Bible, which it is still, we have. And Jeremiah's scroll in it, Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel, the group being taken to Babylon, that after 70 years, that God would allow them to return to the, their homeland. And on the basis of that promise that Daniel read, he would pray into that promise. Even though he may not have ever seen it with his own eyes, he prayed that his people would see it with their eyes. He prayed into that promise. Now, there are so many things for us to glean from this. And again, this is just for us to be able to be strengthened on how to represent the Lord better in our lives. Look at this about prayer. It teaches us a lot about what? Prayer, for one, right? So I'll just make this point. Look what we can glean here about the power of prayer, about the power of having dedicated time just to spend it with the Lord, to talk to him, to lay our heart before him. It talks also about the power of having patterns of prayer, doesn't it? There is something about having regular prayer times 
that the idea in Daniel's case was morning, evening, at noon. But the, the, the idea of us, like we mentioned, carving out space to spend it with the Lord. And then the power of prayer coupled with the promises and the principles of God's word is right there. So that when we're praying, in the, a lot of times, if you really want to grow, if, you want, if we want our power base to be strengthened, if we want to represent the Lord better, if we want a song in our heart, then we will take seriously the carving out of space to do this. In it, the idea of taking the, the scriptures, maybe a devotional, the idea of praying, writing out your prayer, writing out a passage that speaks. And then we know that there's even one more thing that, da that Daniel did, right? We're talking about the power of claiming those promises, right? When you when you claim those promises as our own, they create a distinct blessing in them. There's a power in it so that we start we start saying, Lord, on the basis of this word, like I read a, a verse, and all of a sudden that verse has great meaning to me. Like all of a sudden, it might feel like that's resonating. There's something there. Like that was, that's, it means something in the context of what it is being read. But it also is like God saying, you need to take that word for where you are right now in your life at this moment. You take this word, and then you claim it as your own. Like you, you start to sense an impression that this is a word that you're meant to claim over this season of your life. And you start to pray into that word and let that, the power of that word begin to take root. You can, you, there are times where you, what you get, this is, I'm just submitting this. This is how it has been in, in my life and I've watched it in the lives of countless others. A word becomes a word. A word becomes a word for us at a season of our life and we are to pray into that word just like Daniel was doing. So the question is this, are there promises that God is inviting us to pray into at this particular season in our lives? I look at that and I go, oh, Lord, okay, you give us an example, and I'll just call this our, our third piece. The example reminds us to cultivate our devotional life with God because there's a crucial connection, loved ones, between spiritual devotion and strength of character. Do we see it? Our inner life shows up in our outer life. Put another way, the outer life usually reveals the inner life. Daniel's prayer pattern was a core component of his power base. It's, it, it was part of the way he lived. It was the primary place where his, his relationship with God was cultivated. It's where his character, his personality was formed and forged and preserved and strengthened. So in other words, what I'm saying is Daniel was effective in his outer world, his public world, his workplace world, because he paid attention to his inner world. And a lot of times we're, we're, we're only fooling ourselves if we think that, you know, when the, crunch, when the heat is on and it's crunch time and I'm going to be put in a spot where I got to make a call that I'm going to do the right thing with God because that's just the way I feel. No, a lot of times what happens is in the heat of the moment, we fall back into what we've been feeding our soul. And if we've been paying attention to our soul and nurturing our inner life, what will show up in these moments where a lot of things are on the line will be things that God can use in a way to represent his heart well. A lot of times there are reasons for disappointment when we say, well, I can't believe how weak I was, or why didn't I speak up, or I should have said this. A lot of times in those moments, part of the reason is we haven't been pouring into our core center with the Lord. We haven't been cultivating that place. The, the strength of character is always connected to our devotion spiritually. The, the two go together. I'm not selling a false bill of goods here. It's the way it works. We get what we put in. And many times when we really needed to show up is because we've been being serious about it 
at the quiet places when no one sees. But it's us and God and a few others who are training with us, right? I'll leave it with this last piece. When I look at it, I go, Lord, there's going to have to be some line that we're unwilling to cross when we're willing to risk, radically risk, because we love you. Daniel got to a point where he, he had to decide, am I going to, what am I going to do? If I do this, if I, should I just concede and go along, or do I do what I've always done? And he came to the conclusion that here was a line, this was his death line. He couldn't cross it. Like he was almost saying, if I cross this line, I've sold my soul. Jesus said, what shall it profit a man or a woman? They gain the whole world and you lose your soul. There are some places, it's like uh, Jim Elliott who ended up giving his life. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no, no fool. That was a man who, who lost his life in Ecuador in, 19, in the 50s, living it out, you know. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There are moments where God calls us to take a stand and we can go no further. Because to, to yield here, again, it's not, a science, it's not science, it's art. Our lines aren't always the same. In our workplace, there'll be different things. But there will be places we're brought to where we don't, for us to cross that line is to give away the core of who we are and our love for him. Can't do it. Can't do it. To gain him, the pearl of great price, by which a person sells all they have to have it. All right, let's pray. We'll pray together. Lord, I ask you to just be with us in this word. It was meant to strengthen and encourage us, Lord. I, I pray that, again, not, not try to, to in any way uh, guilt people into anything beyond just wanting us to, to be qualitatively capable of representing you, not just in the way we work and the quality of our work, but also... In, in the way we, we affect other people, that so much of our interactions have to do with people issues. And it's not always easy. It's not always easy to know exactly what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to say, when we're supposed to draw our line. Uh, but there are, there are tools that we can use that will strengthen us to be able to represent you well. Lord, we want to follow in your steps. I want to try, not going to do it perfect, but we want to do it better. So just, you know, help us along the way to shine your light in the places where we have influence and effect. Help us to be life givers in your name, wounded healers capable of inviting others into the place where we have found life, in a culture, in a place where so many are hurting and just don't know what to do. They're trying so many things to fill the need. But you're waiting. You wait with open arms. You're waiting with a love that is unquenchable, and you call us all to it. So I ask for us to be a blessing. I, I pray for your blessing over these closing minutes, over this closing time of giving as we honor you together. Um, I know a lot of us are doing this online now, but I pray for our time of giving. It's what allows us to have a church. And I ask you, Lord, also to be with our closing song. Let it be the final word that sort of brings to closure what we've just shared. And let this resonate throughout the week. This is what I pray in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. <laughs>